This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Ullman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, Bard MBA's Olivia Tausig speaks with Jessica Thurston, Director of ESG Strategy at Viacom CBS. To formally introduce myself, I'm Olivia Tausig. I'm Senior Director of Programming at Ivy and an MBA in Sustainability Candidate at Bard. Thank you for joining us today on the Impact Report, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I wanted to start off by asking you about the merger. CBS and Viacom merged in late 2019 and released its first materiality report soon after. Why was this an important first step for the company and what did the materiality report find? Thank you so much for asking that. You know, we, I'm really excited to be here because something that I think we're doing well at Viacom CBS, but that a lot of companies are working on right now too, is building up a really robust ESG practice, but they're always these sort of lean teams and you need to figure out what matters to you as a company and what can you really execute against? And so when we saw you know, that this merger was coming, um, I joined the, the company just three or so months before, three or four months before, knowing we were going to be setting up an ESG sustainability practice that would span this global content media company. And we knew to be able to do that, we had to ground the practice in the data uh, and in what is really relevant to us. And part of that comes from a practical standpoint. You know, we we are global. We're a house of many, many brands that reach totally different, very diverse audiences. And so it, it could become really easy to get distracted by like just low hanging fruit or by what might be more accomplishable. Um, or interesting, um, but you know, we figured that doing a materiality analysis right away, and we we did. We started it just before the merger, and sort of got our ducks in a row in terms of who we needed to speak to, what we thought were probably the material topics, what our peers were doing, what best in class reporters were doing, that sort of thing, because we wanted to be able to make decisions and stand up an ESG strategy that was truly grounded in what's relevant to us um, and not certain. And by when I say us, I don't just mean our leadership and decision makers within Viacom CBS, but our stakeholders inside and outside the business and doing that materiality assessment and publishing it to us was a really important first nod to transparency, I'll say, um, because we knew we had to get a lot done fast. Just because we merged, didn't mean that ESG rankers and raters stopped looking at um, Viacom and CBS as previously distinct organizations. And so we wanted to very quickly be able to tell a united story about what was already going on inside both companies um, and the brands within both companies, but also what our direction would be going forward. So that was why we wanted to get right into the materiality assessment and make it public. Thank you for that. 
So to kind of follow up on that, in December of last year, 2020, Viacom CBS released its inaugural ESG report, which aligns external ESG frameworks, including GRI, the Global Reporting Initiative, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, and the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. It also outlines the company's alignment with relevant UN Sustainable Development Goals, including gender equality, decent work, and economic growth and climate action. Can you tell us a little bit more about this report and specifically the four focus themes, which you list as on-screen content and social impact, workforce and culture, sustainable production and operations, and governments? Absolutely, and thank you, because the ESG report in 2020 was I, like truly a a child. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I there was not a day that I did not think a lot about that report and what would go into it, because similarly to the materiality report, we thought it would be very, very important to start to tell our story of this combined company. It's, I mean, it's, I sort of, I'm in awe of the work that we do, quite frankly, and I'm still wrapping my head around it. You know, we're, we reach such far corners of the globe and we have such incredible content and audiences and partners. And because of that, we wanna use we knew we wanted to put this report out as quickly as possible because it it's a moment in time. I mean, I think ESG sustainability reporting as a concept and process is itself a moment in time. It was a way for us to say, here's our narrative of who we are, of what we're working on and what, what would lean on that materiality report um, and say, okay, so here's what we're going to do about it. And here's frankly, what we're already doing, putting together the, ESG report was as much a nod to transparency externally as it was internally a tool and remains a tool for us on the ESG team to continue to work with our senior leadership team to everyone owning what is reflected in that report and saying, here's where we think we are. Did we capture this correctly? But also, like you mentioned, the GRI framework, SASB, TCFD, here's what else we need to talk about or build our strategy around. So the three content, I shouldn't say content pillars, but the three pillars that frame our ESG strategy, plus our response to COVID, um, to us are the right way for now um, to tell that story of what is material or relevant to our company. And we did especially want to center on-screen content and social impact because that's how we show up. You know, that when someone's on their phone or they're watching our programming or engaging with one of our initiatives in the community, you know, we need to talk about what that looks like, how we actually show up to different audiences. And by that, I also mean how we stand up for the things that we believe in. That That's why our content and our social impact workers are, are, are really so interrelated. The other two pillars of our work are workforce and culture, which is really important and also somewhat straightforward, but it's a it's some place that we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and specifically what that looks like behind the camera. We like to say like everyone that makes it so that we do show up in everyone's living rooms across the globe. And then sustainable production and operations is kind of where we talk about how we do things. You know, we could have organized our ESG strategy and even this report according to ESG, environmental social governance. And that works for a lot of organizations. But 
I realized that we were thinking about our material issues in these sorts of buckets. Like, who are we, workforce and culture? What do we do? How do and how do we show up on screen content and social impact? And then how do we actually do that work? And that is by sustainable production, green production. We produce content and distribute it and develop it and all of these things, but doing that responsibly is incredibly material to what we do. And it's a place we can really demonstrate leadership and are proud to do so. Um, and operations is just, hey, we're a big media company. We develop content all over the globe. Our employees get on airplanes in normal times. Uh, what does that look like? Like how, what do our offices look like? We still have an, uh, an obligation, I believe, to talk about those sorts of operational impacts. So that's how we got to those pillars. And really we use this report as a delivery system to start to articulate those three pillars, but frankly, to lead into what we're doing now, which is really big goal setting across the organization. Um, and that order of operations, you know, looking at our materiality assessment or conducting one and publishing it, starting to report, like putting in place a, a system by which we report annually and then developing goals. That's how we've decided to stand up this ESG program in a way that is very specific, guided by data, guided by you know, benchmarking against leaders in ESG across all industries, um, and something that would make us you know, sustainable as an organization in the long term. Thank you for that. Um, I have a couple of follow-up questions just to go a little bit deeper on this because it's so important. Um, the first one, you know, we just mentioned, we threw out a lot of frameworks, right, for reporting. And there is this debate whether it's really, you know, the entry point for businesses is reasonable with all these very complicated frameworks that cover overlapping things in some way. How did you navigate choosing what you would disclose from which frameworks? And frankly, do you have a personal opinion if there should be, if it's possible to get a universal framework that we can kind of say, here's the starting point? I actually think that the Global Reporting Initiative, GRI, is as close to a universal framework as we at least need for the time being. I, I certainly agree with a lot of my peers in this industry that there are so many frameworks and at the same time as there being all these frameworks, there's also all these rankers and raters that want completely different things. And in an ideal world, we'd have one list of questions that we all need to answer and that informs our reporting and that would satisfy all of these, I'll call them surveys to, to simplify them. Maybe we'll get there, but the GRI allows you to say, here's what's material. And so here's what I will disclose in addition to a series of indicators that all companies need to disclose, you know, things like where are your headquarters? Um, and that, that I think works well. Where it gets a little interesting is SASB. You know, that is focused on an investor audience and the investor community is incredibly important to our ESG work. Going back to the fact that we're building this program, not at all as an add-on, but as a, a lens by which we look at, okay, how are we assessing the viability of our company? How are we identifying inefficiencies? Those are often ESG questions that have environmental and social externalities. So we figured that GRI and SASB together helped us disclose what was most important to that audience um, and to being able to ultimately answer that, those questions about our viability, our opportunity, that sort of thing. TCFD 
candidly is difficult. And I think most companies are very early in their ability to report against it. It was never a question to us. You know, when we first sat down and said, we're going to publish our first ESG report, we said, and we're going to speak to TCFD in it. And in conversations with investors and even internally, folks said, like, how are you going to do that in year one? And, and we just, we used it to level set. We're working on building out, you know, really complex responses to that and talking about in more detail how we assess the impact of climate change on our business and our responsibility um, to manage and mitigate any climate impacts we have. Even though that's difficult, we still figured it's really important to do. Let's at least start to talk about how we're thinking about it. And we know that a lot of rankers and raters, and frankly, the CDP, Carbon Disclosure Project, I guess formerly the Carbon Disclosure Project, CDP, wants companies like ours to talk about TCFD. So we chose those frameworks because this is, again, this isn't an add-on. We committed to responding to what our stakeholders want to hear, even if we don't have all of the answers yet or aren't at a place where we have a, a simplified external facing answer. Again, we are a house of so many brands and we're global and we just merged. We can still say, here's how this is informing our decision-making and here's what we'll continue to share over time. So that's why we prioritized them. Great. Um, and one more quick follow-up before we move on. You mentioned on-screen content. Of course, that's, you know, where your real power lies as, right. as a brand. So, um, you know, I'm cognizant that advertising is a big source of climate disinformation mm -hmm. and specifically mm -hmm. advertisements from fossil fuel companies have perpetuated this over the years. So I'm wondering if Viacom CBS has a policy as regards to accepting advertisements from fossil fuel companies, and if you have any content standards that you sort of think about how to accept or reject. Yeah, I, I love this question because I'll tell you, it's one of the first things I asked too, uh, when I joined the team is just how are those decisions made? Because again, when you're looking at so many different, even just channels, when you think about how you show up, how we show up in someone's living room or on their phone, like how can you possibly, <laughs> synthesize decision-making around something like advertising, but we do. So we have a standards and practices team and they've set guidelines. I, we don't even always make them public. I mean, our ESG report is one way we started to, but just because it's the right thing to do and it reflects the beliefs of our audiences and what is important to our audiences and our partners is that, you know, we don't show things like, um, e-cigarettes, you know, we, we won't display those advertisements. And there's like, a, there's a list of others and I'm not naming them because I just don't want to mi misname them, but they are in our ESG report. And we'll continue. I appreciate that question too, because to me, that says we can get even more specific about what those guidelines are. But suffice it to say, we have a standards and practices team that sits at the corporate level, looks across all of our brands, and says, we have standards for our advertisers, and this is what they, this is what we will and won't accept. And there's a whole team. Below, you know, we have a head of that practice. There's a whole team that then looks at kids advertising and because there's different standards for what we would show on Nickelodeon from what we would show on BET or on CBS News. And they are actually watching everything and noting things that might not adhere to our policy. And just to kind of take that one step further, 
I loosely group that sort of question under things like what are our editorial standards and guidelines, even though it is about advertising, because again, it's it's what we're showing. It's how we're showing up. It is our on-screen content. Um, and that the practice of outlining our editorial guidelines and putting them on paper and sharing them publicly is something a lot of organizations haven't done, but we have started to do through the CSG report and other places. Um, and I think we need to continue to do it. And I'm excited that we're doing it. And that is just getting more and more specific about what our editorial practices are. It, that is so material to us. And we're really lucky to have, you know, really robust programs in place, but also a leadership team in standards and practices that says like, no, this is what we believe in and this is what we're gonna stand by. I really appreciate that answer. I think when we talk about these kind of issues, there is a focus on the firewall between advertising and editorial. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's just what's on your screen. It, there, a lot of times people can't really make that distinction. Right. Um, so right. I appreciate your perspective on that. Um, and of course you mentioned working with other teams across this very large corporation. Uh, sustainability is something obviously you have to get substantial buy-in from leadership on. So I'm wondering what was that process like for you navigating such a large company and, and getting buy-in? Did you, were you successful in that? Did you have any challenges? Well, I'll say it's every day that's, that's what we're working on, but I, I love my job. So I, I like, I sound like I'm going to fangirl, but I love it because from day one, we had senior leadership buy-in to stand up an ESG program and for it to be specifically tied to our business, like very much about what are our operational metrics for success, not about what are like, what are some add-on programs that we can do. That was something that came up in, in my own interview process. Um, and when we were sure we were merging, we kind of all, all sat down, anyone who'd been touching sustainability in one way or another on either side of the house, sat down and said, what, how's it going over here? How's it going over here? What are your roadblocks? But very genuinely, we've had support, especially from our CEO, Bob, and from our board of directors, and one, the first thing that the board said to me when, when I first presented to them was, don't just compare us to our peers, we want to be best in class. And you know that's of course music to my ears as someone who's studied sustainability. Um, but you know I, I kind of go back to when I was in graduate school, a professor said to me, you know, in a couple decades ago, there was an international desk and, um, now there's an international desk, every job is international. If we do this right, I kind of don't need to have a job. <laughs> like ESG should start to become part of our decision. And by that, I, I mean, thinking about environmental and social and governance externalities should start to become part of all of our decision-making. I can say, I think we're on the path there. We stood up an ESG council um, right away. And that is, a combination of our senior leadership team, particularly those that oversee really material components um, of our ESG strategy. It includes our general counsel, um, our head of operations, um, lots of folks in legal, you know, lots of people from across the company, but also people that are owning the, the most, mm, I'll say sort of salient um, ESG and sustainability projects on the day-to-day. -day. So it's, it's 
we're, it's almost level agnostic and it's more about who is a decision maker in ESG and sustainability. Let's all come together and make recommendations to our senior leadership team. I should also say I'm very lucky to uh, report into uh, incredibly supportive women who are really, really engaged with my career and believe in ESG. And the head of our team is a chief communications officer. Sometimes I joke that I report to her, but also to chief counsel, also to our CFO, also to our head of investor relations in a good way. Like I've never seen such transparency between that level of leadership when I was at other companies or when I was on the consulting side of things. So there's genuine buy-in. And the good part is, you know, anytime we pitch a new ESG project, we talk about our reporting, the question is, okay, great. How are you going to measure it? You know, this is not at all like a check the box sort of situation. It's like, how are you actually making this a reality and something that is part of our business every day? So no, we're, we're so lucky uh, to have the engagement that we do. Awesome. Really nice to hear about women in leadership positions always. Oh, I'm so lucky. There's so many. <laughs> I mean, there's all sorts of amazing people at the company, but I'm very blessed to be able to have a lot of women leaders um, sort of guiding the way here. The Impact Report is brought to you by the MBA in Sustainability Program at Bard College. Recently named the number one green MBA and ranked as a top business school for nonprofit leaders by the Princeton Review, the Bard MBA in Sustainability offers a globally leading business curriculum that integrates sustainability vision, real-world consulting engagements, organizational transformation, and entrepreneurial training, equipping graduates to lead a just transition to a sustainable future. The hybrid program meets one weekend per month in New York City and online two evenings per week, allowing students to complete the program from around the U.S. without halting their careers. Bard MBA is accepting applications from aspiring changemakers for fall 2021 enrollment. Learn more at gps.bard.edu. So I want to move on to a different, uh, different area. So the media industry and media production in general do have a history of lacking diversity and of the treatment and marginalization of women, people of color, those with disabilities, and those that are non-binary and gender conforming. How specifically is Viacom CBS tackling this issue from the C-suite to the screen and to the set? I really appreciate you asking that. You know, diver diversity, equity, inclusion are extremely material topics to us and frankly to kind of any company, especially one of our size. But we approach this question because it, it's not, if someone came and said, oh, that's an easy one to solve. We'll just put it in place one standard and it's gonna be totally solved. You should not believe them. <laughs> like the, to, to make it a diverse workforce and to create content that is reflective of culture and interesting to our audiences and is meaningful to our audiences is something that involves having DE&I practices that truly filter through all parts of the organization, but are designed to do so as well. It can't be just a top-down directive. It has to be implemented in really specific ways. So we have an Office of Global Inclusion and that the leader of that team reports directly to our CEO and is involved in kind of the two big 
I'll call it tranches of DEI at Viacom CBS. The first being our workforce. You know, we say we a goal of, of mine for us is to be the most diverse organization in front of and behind the camera and measuring that diversity and setting and defining what we mean by it. You know, it can be visible or cognitive or experiential. But we need to talk about how, what that means to both our workforce so that we have we're the best place that talent wants to come work and, you know, meaning talent in front of the camera, but also all of us, you know, everyone was sort of working behind the scenes, but also it, I don't want to say more importantly, more visibly uh, in front of the camera. And so to do that, we are putting in place like really, really specific metrics. You know, there's a lot, we have a lot of internal measurement tools for that, but we also have very public facing commitments. And one that we are, we announced, I guess it was last summer and are continuing to build upon is content for change. And that's an initiative that came out of BET and is now being um, sort of dispersed among, I guess all of our brands, the whole company in lots of different ways as a way of saying, here's what our standards for diversity and inclusion are in our content and looking at how that is different for each of our brands. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not. Um, but I will say, you know, taking it back to the first piece of this, to me, feeling like we have an inclusive workplace um, makes all of that actually happen. From with my ESG hat on, what I'll say too, is it's not always easy to get that picture. You know, there's some there's data that in the US is required for us to collect um, as a company. It's different data, meaning on our workforce and our people, it's different data in even just the UK. Um, and so, on, you know, having a kind of fair and complete picture of where we are doing well, where we have opportunity to grow in diversity, is not a, there's not one way to do it. And there's also data, you know, uh, sexual identity, disabilities, that's self-reported, at least in the US. And what that means is companies like ours have to go above and beyond in how we create space for folks. We have employee resource groups, which I think are really helpful. I'm in our, our queer workplace, uh, ERG, we call them, um, which I really, really like. I think that's just one way, but it's also about creating a space that is safe and how we define that for the work that we do. So I'm sort of rambling here just to say that diversity shows up both behind the camera and in front for us. And so that Office of Global Inclusion we have is a really key part of it. We also have a tranche of our senior leadership team that they meet to specifically talk about diversity in our content, but also how that those decisions about our content are made internally. Um, so that's how we're starting, not even starting, this work has been ongoing, but how we're continuing to address it. Because, you know, you're absolutely right. I think that the industry as a whole, can't we can't let off this issue. We, we need external stakeholders to continue to remind us what specifically could be missing, you know, who's not being represented in our content. Um, or who doesn't have access to our content, like access to programming, media literacy, you know, those are ESG topics that we have centered and I think do a really great job around. But it's, it's important for us to continue to get those questions so that we know, okay, maybe we haven't told our, enough of a story about what we're doing to make an inclusive workplace or, or what have you.
Thank you. Um, yeah, you mentioned how the viewers kind of fit into this. So I appreciate that. Um, and you were talking about metrics. You know, I think most companies have this sort of baseline of collecting race and gender data, but like you were saying with your boss and how supportive she is, you know, just having them there isn't enough. You have to listen to them and support them, um, whether that's women, people with disabilities, uh, mm -hmm. any marginalized group. Um, and you mentioned something about cohorts and kind of creating a supportive workplace. Can you talk a little bit about maybe uh, any metrics that are you that you're using that kind of go above and beyond what could sort of be called quotas um, and, and are kind of tracking how successful people are in the workplace. I'm smiling because I, I really geek out over these types of questions. So you might have to stop me. Um, I just so appreciate that question because on one hand, it is very important to, I don't want to say meet quotas, but to make sure that we are at least tracking and reporting annually. And we do that through the ESG report. We also do it through a now annual slash periodically updated diversity and inclusion report. We have an inclusion webpage on our site in which we update this, these sorts of statistics. But right, it's not just about that because that's, that's a static picture, right? If you're, you're taking a snapshot of gender, racial, ethnic diversity, by level of the company um, and by loosely geographically. It's really important to know because we can obviously look at trends over time that matter, but something that we also look at is uh, how folks rise through the ranks, you know, and say, you know, identifying trends and, you know, making sure that we are promoting people very equally, that we're building a pipeline of talent internally, but also something that we do as we have a few different programs that are either with partners or that are our own through which we try to build diverse pipelines of talent for you know young directors for example Be identifying and acknowledging the fact that there is not people do not have equal opportunity to media um you know particularly to be a creator to be on the talent side of things there's only so many jobs and so to take a risk on entering that field can often come with privilege. And so we support these programs so that we're able to say, okay, we believe as Viacom CBS that we should be making an investment in the future creators in our industry, whether or not they end up working for Viacom CBS, but looking at the paths that folks take to reach, you know, to become successful directors or talent on screen or what have you. And so we look very specifically at what those sorts of trajectories look like, Again, both in terms of developing that content and early pipeline, but also um, within our company. And, and I'll actually, I'll, I'll add to that too by saying, not that there's a specific metric around this, but particularly through the pandemic, if anything, we've put more gas on, that's not a phrase, it's too early. Um, whatever, we've accelerated. <laughs> um, a commitment to professional development and particularly of folks that may you know have less engagement with senior leadership that i think i'm sure is something people are feeling across all industries and companies if you don't already engage with senior leadership gosh well you're not going to see them in the hallway when you're working from home that's difficult and so i've been so excited to see the different things we've done internally to give folks visibility to senior leadership and to have professional development opportunities you know, things like bringing in speakers, talking about 
what a diverse organization looks like, how to advance in that organization, that sort of thing. And again, while that's not something that's necessarily explicitly measured or reported against, I do think that it's an investment that we're making that is the right thing to do, um, but also takes us away from that sort of static picture of what our workforce looks like. Great, thank you. Um, so I wanna take a step back and focus on you and your career journey. What led you to this work and how did you get into this field? Well, I studied sustainability kind of indirectly um, as an undergrad. I studied uh, urban design. And so I actually came from a place of thinking about sustainability in the built environment. But when you think about urban planning, it's systems, it's systems thinking. And I decided I wanted to think about systems and you know almost like systems engineering but applied to organizations i know that sounds very broad and vague but i just knew i cared about identifying efficiencies which it truly is what sustainability is it's what is in the way of this continuing um and you know having a net benefit uh for society and for the world and I entered, I actually started my career in the federal government and I looked, I was working on sustainable procurement policy. Um, for example, things like how do you green the federal fleet? How do you measure that? How do you make it a sustainable practice? You know, you can't give someone um, in law enforcement chasing a bad guy a Chevy Volt, which um, I wanted to do. You know, but this is better for the environment. So <laughs> we'll paint it black for you. Do not worry. Um, <laughs> real conversations from my early 20s, but that was the way I got in. I, I really, really believe in um, civic engagement and in working for the government in one way or another. And so that, you know, that was a way to look at, okay, I could only make my pitch to federal contractors, for example, I mean, well, to contracting officers, if I could say this is better environmentally, socially, and it saves taxpayer dollars. So I approached it thinking from all of those pieces. Um, and frankly, kind of made up a role for myself along the way. I was able, I was very lucky to um, enter the workforce at a time when sustainability was starting to take shape. I was never the first person in an organization thinking about it, but I may have been the first person with a title against it. Um, and so I, I kind of just use that to my advantage. I pitched sustainability related projects, uh, even if they weren't necessarily on the docket. And uh, continue to do that when I moved into the private sector too. So what I've always said to folks who are trying to get into sustainability is that, well, you kind of need a breadth of understanding of the industry because I need to be able to go into any meeting at work and generally have a sense of what the environmental and social impacts of whatever we're discussing might be. I'll do research later, but I kind of need to generally have a sense of what we're talking about um, and identify the the loopholes, the gray areas, I'm a, be, be, leading an ESG team is basically being a professional skeptic. You know, people will tell me things and I say, all right, well, I'm gonna look into that and see if that sounds right. Something's gotta be missing there. It's gonna make this unsustainable. That's a lot of the skill set for this work. But in addition to having that breadth, I always think it's good to have depth into one or two areas. And so for me, that was thinking about supply chains. I worked for the General Services Administration, 
at the federal government and really, really geek out over inefficiencies in getting one thing to another. For most organizations, including for the federal government, this is gonna be a bit in the weeds. I hope the sustainability audience is okay with that. But most of our emissions are scope three emissions, meaning most of the inefficiencies that we have to correct or can improve, you know, processes we can improve upon are in things like, how are we traveling? How are our goods getting from one place to another? Who, what are some externalities we might not be aware of? That sort of thing. And by focusing on supply chains and that itself being sort of a systems thinking approach, I was able to kind of translate that into other roles and say, well, I'll be on this project or that project because, oh, I'm the person who understands supply chains. I feel like I'm going to get myself in trouble for that. Someone will ask me a supply chain question later. I'll be like, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. It's Friday. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that was sort of my path. And I will say, going back and getting my graduate degree in sustainability management, I did it part-time while I was working full-time, um, did open a lot of doors for me and, and helped um, make connections, at least to the sustainability community in New York City. And you know, meet more folks through networking and uh, and building more of my expertise and how to calculate greenhouse gas emissions and what metrics to develop um, for specific organizations and that sort of thing. So I will always, I really encourage people to do advanced coursework in this. Great, that's encouraging to hear because that's what I'm doing right now. So <laughs> it works as well. That was awesome. Um, and I also really enjoy hearing stories about like the wild west days of sustainability when people were making up their own job titles. That's, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you've got to get creative with it. And my job was, it wasn't unrelated to my job, but I took what time I could to say, if there's two projects, I'm going to pick the one that is more ESG sustainability related. Right. And personally speaking, I came a little more from the environmental angle everything environmental ties back to carbon emissions as far as I'm concerned. When you're talking about what to measure for a company, obviously things like biodiversity are incredibly important too. Um, but that was my personal interest. And I just created projects along the way where I could while getting the rest of my work done. And so that, you know, that I think can work out for folks. I, I hope it still works that way. Um, I think it does. <laughs> I think most companies, if they have an ESG team, these teams are still very lean because the work happens elsewhere in the organization. Right, but right. that means that if you're on one of these teams or adjacent to it, there is work that you can do and you will be helping people in roles like mine. We will take all the help we can get. And love. I really, really love to support folks that are new um, to the industry. I'm really lucky to have, again, that lean team, but of mostly young women who are interested in sustainability and ESG and, um, you know, investing in them and their careers in this field and just saying, you have a project you want to lead, go ahead and take it, get your other stuff done, but go ahead and take it. That's great. I might be haunting your inbox very soon. Thank <laughs> you. Oh, I would, I would love to chat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, great. So, you talked about a little bit about this already, but uh, is there anything else you'd like to share about your sort of day-to-day -day work life? You know, who are you meeting with? How big is your team? Yeah, sure. I, again, this is, folks still don't talk about this. It can, it, it can feel competitive or something between companies, but like ESG folks really need to band together and tell each other what our resources look like. So I, maybe, 
maybe not 90%, at least at the beginning of standing up this program a year and a half ago, it felt like 90% of my job was in socializing the value of transparency and measuring our material impacts and reporting against them externally. And so the majority of my meetings remain with our senior leadership team or with people who um, own big parts of our work, um, like the person who is absolutely lovely on our, on our Viacom CBS team who leads supplier diversity uh, or the head of our treasury. Uh, you're catching me on a week when I feel like I work for the treasury team. That's the fun thing about ESG. I sometimes, it's like I'm wearing a different hat all the time. I bounce between meetings about Nickelodeon and SpongeBob SquarePants and what sustainability means to that property that is incredibly important to our organization and to families and kids across the world. Um, to meetings about, um, you know, what are some interesting financial opportunities we have to signal our commitment to diversity and inclusion and how do we do that publicly uh, with our treasury. So it, I truly bounce between completely different things all day long, which I find thrilling and tiring at times. What has made that sustainable, though it's still a work in progress, is having folks on my team who have fairly dedicated focus areas. So for example, example, someone who reports to me spends 50 to 60% of her time on ESG investing, calculating that opportunity, um, looking at what are we disclosing, what are some gaps in our disclosures that we're already doing internally, and if we published them, we would get points here, here, and here. You know, thinking about those rankers and raters and being very specific again, going back to that materiality analysis about what we're sharing. Um, then there's someone else who has more of a focus on energy and sourcing. And then we're building out our team to focus more on sustainable production. We have folks that, well, as we continue to build this team are more focused on communications and helping us write and edit that ESG report. But we do also use external partners, particularly for reporting, um, for things like um, the TCFD moving forward potentially will work with the partners, you know, someone with expertise in calculating and developing carbon goals, um, you know, things that we could do internally, but we don't want to waste time. And if there's expertise out there, we want to do this right. And so we lean on the resources we have to do that. So um, again, I'm very lucky to have senior leadership support and a budget against ESG and sustainability. I know that doesn't exist everywhere, but it is worth doing. Um, and with that said, that's why I have so many meetings <laughs> with senior leadership. It's just explaining something, giving them an update on where we are, what our goals might be, our process for that. That's the majority of my role. And again, I'm really lucky to have um, a team under me that is very lean, but also partners through that ESG council and every part of the company that are owning the different projects that we're doing and giving updates on it. Thank you. That's a really helpful overview. I kind of get a clear picture of how you're brokering across levels yeah. of the company. And brokering is the seems, like, seems like a really exciting and like you said, tiring kind of position to be in. In a, in a good way. There are there are definitely some days I look down at my desk and it's just all different colored sticky notes of me <laughs> saying like, actually, this is like starring this as the priority. I'm like, oh no, there's seven things that have to happen right now. But let me tell you, I am so blessed to be this busy and there on any given day 
our team is working on something that could be the first time a media company does X or a US-based company does X. And that's where we wanna be, not just for our own leadership potential, um, but because it's the right thing to do. We can set an example for other companies that have significant environmental and social and governance impacts because of our size and the scope of what we do. Um, but telling that story and doing so in ways that is really specific to how we create value and frankly, how we make money is where our opportunity lies. And that, that's what keeps it so exciting. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, well, respecting your time because you are very busy. Uh, I want to just wrap busy, up. You know? <laughs> that's true, especially these days. Um, well, but I wanted to wrap up with just a final question about any projects or initiatives that you're really excited about these days and really anything else that you want to share with us? Yeah, um, the two things that are most on my mind right now, and you could ask me this question tomorrow and I might have a different answer, but I'm really excited about the goal setting that we're doing. Again, we took these steps very intentionally, doing a materiality assessment, producing our first ESG report, standing up those ESG pillars in the report related to the materiality assessment, and now goal setting, because we know how ambitious we are internally, and we have announced some goals that we're already really proud of. For example, I might get this a little bit wrong, but across CBS television, studios networking, CBS, um, in the 2021 to 2022 season, we've set a goal for our, the writer's rooms to be 40% BIPOC and then 50% by the next broadcast season. And that's a goal that rolls up into these I'll say more cross-organizational ESG goals that we're developing. To me, it's really fun because it's where we get to just be super creative. Um, and also it's where we're able to lean on different parts of our team across the organization and say like, if you could get anything done in ESG, what would it be? Let's talk about how we can make that happen. Um, and again, our leadership team has been really supportive in saying, yeah, set an ambitious goal. And we'll talk about it. We wanna make sure we can measure it we want to hold ourselves accountable to things we put out publicly. So let's brainstorm on this. So goals are my one of my favorite things right now. Um, we also recently became a signatory, and I believe we're the first American broadcasting company to do so, to the UN, I'm going to get the exact name wrong, but it's the climate action in sports framework. Um, and we did that because CBS, as CBS, we you know, hosted the, the Super Bowl with NFL. And our partners at NFL Green, their sustainability organization at the NFL, had signed on. And we decided this made a lot of sense for us. We're already committed to working, you know, to climate mitigation, climate, mitigating our impacts from climate change, but also communicating about that. And that's a lot of what that UN agreement um, asks organizations to commit to. So to me, it's been really fun because I love thinking about CBS sports and where our impacts and opportunities are there, really our opportunities because we have such reach to talk about environmental and social impacts of sports. But it's also one of those things where we get to remind folks like, yes, we have MTV, we have Nickelodeon, here's the, the ESG impacts there, but oh, remember CBS sports, that massive organization? like the environment, you know, the environment is really important in CBS sports too. And here's our commitment to addressing it. So I'm just really proud to see us take public stands in that way. And, you know, participating in that UN group is really exciting. The other thing I'll just say, I thought of another thing, um, is, you know, we have a really exciting rollout of Paramount Plus coming, which is 
very cool. I don't know if you've seen the commercials, but I'm a Steelers fan and I'm sorry if that alienates people, but I'll just say that anytime Bill Cower can be in a commercial with Snooki, I'm very happy to see it. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, as we're rolling up Paramount Plus, it means that streaming changes everyone's business. And so thinking about the ESG impacts of that and talking about what we're doing proactively around it is a really exciting thing for us too, because it's it's sort of that cross-section of looking at our environmental and social impacts, but also how we're communicating about them. That is so much of the work, um, which is why in particular, I appreciate you having me today because we just have to keep talking about what we're doing and having that dialogue. That's so important to us because we genuinely want to hear um, what folks think media companies, content creators can do and what we're already doing. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate you being here. It's been really fun to talk with you. Um, thanks again. And thanks for all the important work that you're doing. Yeah, definitely look forward to continuing the conversation. We appreciate our loyal Impact Report listeners and hope you can help us spread the word about the series and the important sustainability work of our guests. Please rate and review the Impact Report wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you were inspired by this conversation, share a screenshot to your Instagram account and tag Impact Report Podcast. Learn more about the topics discussed in today's episode by visiting viacomcbs.com sustainability. Join us for the next episode of The Impact Report on Friday, March 12th. We'll be speaking with Peter Kroll, CEO of Earth Equity Advisors. Interested in learning how you can launch a high-impact, purpose-driven career in sustainability? Check out the resources page from the Bard Graduate Programs in Sustainability for access to free resources to jumpstart your career in sustainability. Hear from leaders in the fields of climate change, consulting, impact finance, fashion, circular economy, and more about how they launched their careers and the tips they have for you to join their industry. Visit gps.bard.edu slash resources today.